0: Happy Monday, or whatever day you might be listening to this. Thanks for being here. Welcome to the Moms Are Not All Right podcast. This is my second recording because for some reason um, I recorded and the sound didn't come through when I published. So thanks to everyone who let me know. I was so bummed. Um, I had to update my phone and delete the app and then reinstall it and. I tested a recording and it worked, so I'm hoping that this is successful. I'm re-recording it all on my lunch break, and I hope you get to enjoy it today. <laughs> so today's topic is about sex, but not really like tips and tricks as a warning in case that's what you were expecting or wanting. Um, I read a book that really helped me understand myself better when it comes to sex and I wanted to talk about it in hopes this information helps others either learn something or make them feel more normal like it did for me. I just want us all living our best lives, having great sex with great partners and being happier humans for it. I'm in no way paid to talk about this book. It's not a promotion. I just read it and genuinely thought it was interesting and want to share. The book is called Come As You Are by Emily Nagoski. I'll break it down, like a lot of the info and talking points, and if you want to buy the book to learn more or do the worksheets in the book, go for it. It's also on the Libby app, so if you have a library card, you can download this app and listen to books or read books for free if a library has them. But uh, you must have a library card to sign up. It's one of my favorite apps ever. It's called the Libby app. So I don't really love talking about sex. I feel like this is probably the most taboo topic to bring up in my life. Not money or alcohol or literally any other topic. But this one gets me feeling a little awkward turtle. And I feel like I can't be the only one, right? So let's just get into it. In the first part of the book, she really delves into the parts and the inner workings of private parts and, you know, what they're called that we typically don't discuss. And it was so interesting reading it and looking at the um, graphs and just realizing how little I know about my own parts. Like, How was I never taught this, like, in this depth? And to be honest, I I had, like, no idea where or what these parts were until, like, my 30s. I learned so much from going through egg donation about all my reproductive cycles and hormones and organs, but not so much about the actual, like, anatomy and terms and, like, exterior things. So not only... Do I feel like I wasn't really taught that info in my lifetime? But I also realized that I never, like, kind of thought to myself, like, I should probably learn about this. I don't know if knowing a lot more about my private anatomy has helped or changed things other than, like, eliminate shame of not knowing. Even though I feel like I shouldn't have too much shame because... How much I knew about the parts and how they come together, I feel like, is a byproduct of the world I live in, and I have a feeling a lot of other people are in similar situations. There's videos of women asking men where certain parts are on, like, female anatomy diagrams, those sometimes surface on my insta-feeds, and I really feel for the men that take on these challenges of pointing out specific parts— And then they get painted as like just dumb men because, but I I feel bad for them and I like resonate with them because up until a couple years ago, like I also didn't know the names of things like, and I guess anatomy isn't really my strong suit. Now here's a quote right from the book regarding all of our parts. We are all made of the same parts, but in each of us, those parts are organized in a unique way that may change over our lifespan. No organization is better or worse than the other. They're just different. An apple tree can be healthy no matter what variety of apple it is. The one variety may need constant direct sunlight and another might enjoy some shade. And an apple tree can be healthy when it's a seed, when it's a seedling, as it's growing, and as it fades at the end of a season as well as when in late summer it is laden with fruit. But it has different needs at each of those phases in its life. You too are healthy and normal at the start of your sexual development, as you grow and as you bear the fruits of living with confidence and joy inside your body. You're healthy when you need lots of sun and you're healthy when you enjoy some shade. That's the true story. We are all the same, we are all different, we are all normal. So according to this book, I guess all babies have the same sexual parts until six weeks gestation. It all looks the same. And then at six weeks, a male hormone washing happens, a shower of a particular hormone happens to the baby. And if the baby is a girl, it won't be affected by this washing. If it's a boy, the fetus will start to grow different parts. I posted a photo of the diagram from the book on my Insta stories if you're curious about those visuals. So this is why um, males have nipples, even though they don't make milk. We are all born with them, and we all look the same way when we are first, like, assembled. And then depending on our hormones or parts, they, you know, will change over time. So another interesting topic brought up in this section is that many women have never seen their own vagina, never looked at it. Even those with vaginas who raise others with vaginas, looking at their own never crosses their mind or is too embarrassing or shameful. If you look at it and it doesn't align with what you've seen before, that can leave an impression on you. I googled this and I went down a rabbit hole of YouTube videos of women before and after looking at their vaginas and it really was, or their vulvas, and it really was so heartwarming to me. It made me emotional. I've seen mine before, but it's not very often that I look at it. It's not like in the most convenient spot for, you know, looking. I sometimes forget that I never really see it, like, from all its angles and all its life portal glory. Um, I did get offered to have a mirror at my first birth, and I said no, which I regret so much to this day. I, like, think about it sometimes. Like, I wish I saw it all. Like, I wish I watched it all unfold, but I was, like, a little too scared at that point. Something I found on Refinery29 is they created a survey asking people what they think about their vaginas and 3,600 people responded and of those respondents, 48% said they had concerns about the appearance of their lady bits, 64 were worried about their size and shape, and 30% were also worried about the color. In one chapter, the author instructs her students to go home and get a mirror and look at your private parts. Her quote is, knowing where the clitoris is is important, but knowing where your clitoris is is power. (laughs) The videos I saw of people looking at it, some were smiling, some were crying. I remember feeling really overwhelmed when I first looked at mine, like really looked at it, It wasn't what I envisioned, but I also feel like I wasn't looking through the same lens that I am now. When I had my last baby, I inspected it quite thoroughly, like right after birth, because I found it so interesting. And the same shame and embarrassment I had in my 20s when I had my first baby didn't really exist anymore. And so all my parts after birth, you know, were unrecognizable, and it's so wild to me how it just like goes back to normal. I remember looking at it and thinking, there is no way it'll recover from this. And sure enough, it did. So, in West, so I'm going to read a quote from the book. It says, in Western science and medicine, women's sexuality has been viewed as men's sexuality light. For instance, it was just sort of assumed that since men have orgasms during intercourse, women should have orgasms with intercourse too. And if they don't, it's because they're broken. Intercourse in this section means P and V. But about a quarter of women orgasm reliably with intercourse. And the other 75% are sometimes really or never orgasm with intercourse. And they are all normal. A woman might orgasm with manual sex, oral sex, vibrators, breast stimulation, toe sucking, pretty much any way you can imagine. And it's totally normal. End quote. Reading this wasn't a huge surprise to me because the clitoris is like outside of the the vagina, like at the top of the vulva and penis penetration is inside the vagina, like at the bottom of the vulva, like they're just not in the same vicinity. I hope I'm using the right terms here. But it really doesn't align to me. That seems like a poor design. Although the part of the clitoris you see outside is just like a small section of the whole thing on the inside. And sometimes penetration can stimulate it. But something that really irks me is I've heard and seen so many like weird videos and podcast podcast clips in my reels about this and how it's God design and proof that sex isn't really for women and it's very ingrained in history and religion and that like whole idea still lingers today which is like kind of sad but porn is also like typically filmed in a way that the man experiences the pleasure and then women or partners see this um, they might watch them together and think those are the professionals right there and if that's how the professionals do it that must be how I have to do it but it's not really portraying women orgasming it's the men it's for men like also made by men and that's kind of all everyone has to go off of and if that doesn't work for you as a woman you could be left there thinking like something's wrong with you here's the part of the book that spoke to me the most and then I like even talk about sometimes like in real life. The author talks about breaks and accelerators and I've always felt this in my relationship but didn't have the right words for it and not just in sex but in other like areas of our life too. My husband and I talk about it all the time like at night my husband can just like lay his head down and go right to sleep like snoring in minutes. He can just like flip a switch where I toss and turn my brain goes a mile a minute I have like I have to like wind down sometimes I'll like get on my phone to distract my thoughts which I don't even think helps but I see it in a lot of other areas of our lives but I definitely see it when it comes to sex as well like and and Jared told me he didn't mind if I mentioned this as an FYI he's a real team player He didn't know what he was signing up for when he got married to me, but here we are. (laughs) Anyway, he can just like flip the switch so effortlessly from like regular weekly mundane life to sexy time, like in an instant. And I just can't, I need to like work up to it. My energy has to be right. My mood has to be right. The room has to be clean. Kids have to be asleep because if they're not, I'm like, worried if they're coming in to the room or like if I hear steps I'm like like I just my head isn't in the game all the stars need to align for me to be able to like flip that switch so I learned in this book that there is like two systems in our bodies the se system it has a longer like word but I can't really pronounce it so I'm just going to call it the se and that's, like, the trouble with, like, always reading stuff, like, I'm unsure how the words are pronounced, but anyway, the essay is the accelerator of your sexual response. It receives information about sex-related stimuli in the environment, things you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, imagine, And it's constantly scanning your context or like the world around you for things that are sex related. It's always at work, even if you don't really notice it. Then there is the SI system, which is your sexual breaks. And research found that there are two breaks. One break works in much the same way as the SE accelerator in that it's always scanning And this part of our brain, the SI, it like keeps us from getting sexually aroused in typical everyday life. And then there's a deeper part to the SI system, which is like fear of performance failure, consequences like pregnancy, um, or you're worried about like taking too long to orgasm. And the brakes and accelerators are traits. We all have them and they all vary between all of us some people are high on both brakes and accelerators or low on both some are high on accelerators and some are high on brakes the book has a sexual temperament quiz you can take and you like read these scenarios and you give yourself a rating on the questions like zero to four and then you add up your total and it determines if you have a low or a high si and se So when my husband and I took the quiz, his answers were all like zero, one, and like maybe a couple twos. And mine are all like threes and fours, which kind of confirmed the difference that I could always tell was there, like in our switching of gears. But having the words to say, I think has helped. So I'll say sometimes like to my husband, like, oh, that's a break, <laughs> or, like, my brakes are turned on because, you know, whatever. Or we will say, my accelerators are not going right now, and we'll try to, like, figure it out to get those accelerators on. The author mentions women typically have more sensitive brakes. The bad news is we can't really change our systems entirely, but the good news is, is that we can make our environment less triggering for them, So another interesting thing about the systems, too, that she states is they are not innate. We, like, gather information from the world around us, and it forms over time. So stress, trust issues, shame around sex can all contribute to your breaks. So in a world where women are shamed and judged for being even slightly sexual, it can make it hard to not have a bunch of breaks, Some examples of breaks are being able to have an orgasm from yourself, but not feeling comfortable enough to have one from a partner. Um, There's also like concerns about reputation. Like if you're single and you're with a partner for the first time and just not sure how to approach it, that can be a break. Um, Reputation stuck out to me because I remember when I was younger, I would hear people talk shit about girls who like, uh like took part in sexual activities all the time they'd be name called and everyone would talk about them even though no one ever talked about like the guy that she was like involved in those activities with and then another thing is like people would talk about people's bodies all the time too like real intimate parts of what It's just the shittiest thing ever, and I'm sure I went along with it and, like, loved to hear those rumors and told other people and laughed about them at that time, but being around that definitely kept me from being more vulnerable with people in those ways. Like, I didn't want my nipple size to be the talk of the fire pit next weekend or whatever the case may have been. Even in my 20s, like, friends would talk about partners' penis sizes or, like, ex-partners, I should say, and I would again, like, laugh along, and now I look back and I feel so bad. Like, people are being vulnerable and sharing that part of themselves just to, like, be dragged by a bunch of people they hardly know, like, out for Mexican for brunch. Like, I don't know. I'm on a big attempt to limit my shit-talking and judgment, and this is really standing out to me in my brain, especially because it's really something people can't control. So... This is definitely a break for me in my younger years. Another break that a lot of people have is um, fear of pregnancy or STI. So you can take more precaution for those things beforehand to hopefully get those accelerators going a little more and pump those breaks. And then other breaks are feeling accepted, trust, the approach your partner might take to sex, like to start it, kick it off, or even like your mood. Stress is a big one, not, is, like, the main break for everybody, but this is the main break for me as well. Like, I can't switch my brain from the inner turmoil and to-do lists and parenting to, like, sexy thoughts. Like, it needs to be, like, a gradual change and, like, the mood needs to change. What we're doing needs to change. I need to go in a different realm, like... Uh, it's not a smooth, quick transition. So, what I need to work on is just being less stressed, which I'm trying to by walking and meditating, taking vitamins. Rah, 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 rah. And this is common. And she explains in the book that most women's sex positive context is low stress, high affection, and explicitly erotic, which I kind of fall into that too. Like, I can't just be sitting on the couch watching TV and then, like, get right to it. Like, I want to be cuddling, holding hands, kiss. Like, I need, like, a buffer between, you know, regular life and then, like, sexy time life. She says in the following chapter that more than half of women report that stress, depression, and anxiety decrease their interest in sex. When we are stressed, we have a lot of things going on at one time, and our brains force us to prioritize the things for our survival, and sex doesn't typically meet the top of the criteria. And I personally, this is not in the book, but I feel like there is a relation to, like, lower sex drives for women and their higher mental load, or at least, like, as far as moms go. And that isn't, like, based on anything other than, like, my real life that I see around me. Like, moms constantly have so much pressure, judgment, expectations, to-do lists, like, other humans to show up for that Like, sex just feels so non-existent, really, at the end of the day. I always see memes of husbands doing chores and the wives are like, that's the sexiest thing. Or, like, men, like, a man is trying to have sex with his wife so he'll go home and do the dishes and the wife knows this and it's like a joke. And I feel like there is some truth to these jokes. Like, if you come home to a clean house and, like, mess is a break for you, Now that break could be turned off and maybe boost the acceleration because you're not having sex next to a pile of laundry that still needs to be folded. And in your mind, if that's like in your vision, like that's what it might start thinking about. She goes on to list ways to cope with stress, such as exercise, yoga, sleep, mindfulness. I do them all and somehow I'm still fucking stressed (laughs) and unfortunately our bodies can't tell the difference between a pile of laundry that needs to get folded and a lying chase like a lion chasing us it like can't decipher real threats always so our bodies can be in fight or flight mode around mess if mess is like triggering for you. I read a part in the book about needing alcohol to have sex due to fears of judgment and, um, like, fears of, like, body image or performance. This stuck out to me because my husband and I have sober-ass sex now, and I don't know. I feel like it might be better, in my opinion, like, than when I was not sober maybe it's because it's like the only high I'm getting these days that like makes it feel a little better but whatever it is it's working and I would think I liked sex better when I was drunk but the reality was like I was a gross mess and like really wasn't even present for it or maybe I thought I was but then I like wouldn't remember and it was just not great and I would use alcohol as like this aid like I'd be like oh, if I drink, it'll be even better or like, I don't know. And I, I don't know why I thought like, oh, I'll. this is cool and I'll do this instead of being like, why do I feel like I need this aid and then like work on figuring that out instead. And another big factor in women's sexuality is body acceptance. The author asks, how would your friends react if you showed up to dinner and said, I feel beautiful today. And then how would they react if you showed up to dinner and said, like, I feel fat today. One of those scenarios is more common than the other and more acceptable to say than the other. And it's the option that you would hope isn't the one that's more acceptable and common. But as she writes a review in, it was like 2012, Uh, It was a review of 57 different studies spanning decades found that there is a direct trade-off between sexual well-being and self-critical thoughts about your body. The overall result is women who feel worse about themselves have less satisfying, riskier sex. Like imagine having sex where you feel so good and desired and then imagine having sex where you feel insecure and unattractive and not desired. I mean just Picturing it in my own head, it looks like two two different experiences. So she says, criticizing yourself is stress. Like we are being attacked by ourselves and it affects us emotionally, mentally, and physically. Like we are the lions in that scenario, like triggering the fight or flight response. Self-criticism is also the number one indicator in loneliness, which to me explains why there's so many moms in my local moms Facebook page that post anonymously that they are lonely and they don't have friends and i think it's hard to put yourself out there when you are feel fearful like people won't like you or accept you or might like not like might judge your parenting I have a bit of an experience this weekend that feels like it could be somewhat related. Uh, maybe not, but I don't know. I feel like It feels like it might be. I'm going to share it. And if nothing else, maybe someone listening to this like, can resonate with it and be like, yeah, I've experienced that too. So I don't typically consider myself having a low confidence, I guess. I also don't really consider myself having a high confidence either. I just kind of like... Exist and move about through the world as I need, but I don't know. This weekend we had a 24-hour period of meeting a lot of people, from t-ball to soccer to play dates. I met a lot of moms, and my son had a lot of social interactions with new kids, and I had to st- kind of steer him through all of this, and like, kind of, you know, there was a lot of work in a 24-hour period. It felt like so Friday night to Saturday afternoon. So, driving home from the play date, which was the last of the interactions or events, I started to cry. <laughs> it was so weird and so unexpected i I was driving home and I was just thinking of all the weird stuff I said, like at the play date, like I mentioned fingering in the play date twice, twice, like oh, I asked someone their age. I could die thinking about that because I don't care about age or like people knowing my age and I forget other people do care and that it's a thing to not ask people their age so I'm like oh god I hope I didn't come off as rude and like ruin someone's day and um, my youngest didn't want to leave the play date he was like crying when it was time to go because he was having so much fun and I had those like fight or flight responses turn on because there's like this audience of adults watching how I handle this and how I handle it is picking him up with no socks and shoes on and walking out with him to the car like kicking and screaming at least I think so this would have been the first like situation this kind of happened in and I started to get anxious anticipating this like first impression of me and my little one and it didn't happen though thank goodness he ended up like leaving pretty calmly and like giving hugs goodbye and stuff thank god but I got in the car we didn't have any more plans like involving any more people for the rest of the day and I don't know I think it felt more like a relief like okay now I'm safe and alone without an audience no expectations and we can just exist and not worry about it I can breathe we made it through all the events even though We could and did exist in our own normal ways and there was never any threat and everyone I met was super fucking nice and they had their own kid interactions to deal with so I'm sure they weren't really concerned with mine. Like my rational world part of my brain knows that's fucking so stupid that I felt that way. I was never in danger but I don't know the physical and emotional fight or flight responses were flipped on. And I didn't even notice they were on until they were flipped off, like in the car. I feel like I always think about stuff after the fact, like after events, like I run through all the weird stuff I say, and I'm starting to think it's because like, I can't really think in the moment, like those responses are on despite not wanting them to be. And despite there being no actual threat, like I was around all nice families, (laughs) then I get to like a safe space, which I did like air quotes in my car and home and I can think about it and I can breathe I don't know just having more interactions with people I'm realizing this about myself and it used to be like way worse when I drank not in the moment but the next day was like debilitating thinking of how weird I was like the day before and now I just have to deal with my natural weirdness 100% sober which also sucks (laughs) and I have Thought about this a lot the last day and a half and I think it comes down to like wanting to be accepted I think um just like not like I don't want to be seen as a bad mom I don't want Emmett to miss out on play dates because like the mom doesn't like me I think it really just comes down to like being accepted by these like other moms so maybe I'm not as confident as I think I am but I feel like the book talks about self-image and acceptance in more beauty and outward appearance, but I feel like even though mine's not like a beauty in appearance image, like I feel like it can be similar because when my husband gets home from work after this whole like fiasco, which wasn't even a fiasco, it was such a fun day for my little one, and I'm like not in the mood to talk. I want to be left alone. I am in no way, like, loving or enjoyable to be around. Like, I don't want to see anyone. I want to sit in silence alone and, like, recover from the trauma that is just, like, existing as a mom, apparently. Like, according to my brain. So if this was an everyday thing, if I was going outside every day... Wondering if the way I looked was palatable enough or okay enough. Like if everyday school drop offs were anxiety inducing for me because I didn't feel as pretty as other moms, or I didn't think I seemed as put together, or my car isn't as nice as everyone else. Like if I had this feeling of worrying if I was going to be accepted every single day. Like I can see how this would affect people, like and translate over into their relationships. So I'm going to read a quote because I've always felt this to be true, but the author puts it in better words. And she says, think about what would really happen if you stopped running from yourself and beating yourself up. What would happen if you put down the whip you have been flogging yourself with for decades? When you stop beating yourself up, when you stop re-injuring yourself, what happens is you start to heal. Self-criticism is far from motivating us to get better self-criticism makes us sicker and I've always felt that if shame and criticizing ourselves over like how we look in our bodies actually worked like everyone on this earth would be walking around like ripped as fuck like so and I see this whenever Lizzo posts that she doesn't hate herself like she'll post a selfie and like an image like her playing the flute like something she's proud of her talents and her posts get flooded by people telling her she should not like herself that she needs to do all these things to change herself and I see a lot of people in these comments say how they are not going to support obesity but in actuality like People coming to terms with themselves and accepting themselves and being able to heal emotionally and physically instead of being attacked and resorting to not great coping mechanisms, I think would move the needle much more. So if people really feel like they are promoting healthy lifestyles by publicly, verbally abusing people, like if they really feel like health is the motivator in all these posts and comments which I have a sneaking suspicion it isn't. But I think they need to reevaluate their approach if they want to see people actually healing and, like, getting healthier. She, uh, she has, like, a, a quote that says, we have cultural permission to criticize ourselves. But, and then for some reason, as soon as we say we like ourselves, impressed by ourselves, there's just, like, this big old bucket of water tossed on those fires, in the book, there's an activity to try to and to summarize it. Next time you have a problem or an insecurity or you're feeling a weird way at pickup, like pretend your friend is asking you for advice. Write your friend's name at the top of the paper and then write a response to your friend and then read it back to yourself and accept, you know, it's advice to you. It remind me kind of what I talked about in our previous episode about, like, bullying. Like, imagine the shitty things you say to yourself. Like, imagine saying them to your 10-year-old self. It just hits a little different. Like, you, we would never talk a certain way to our friends or our children, but for some reason we are okay with talking to ourselves in those ways. She also suggests standing in a mirror and writing the parts of yourself that you do like, it's easy for our brains to automatically go to the parts we don't like, but we can exercise our brains to focus more on the positive. Maybe it can create a shift. The also the author also mentions disgust when it comes to sex. Some of this can be attributed to Judeo-Christian beliefs, like animals are held in lower regard to humans and sex is more of an animalistic thing. Women are held in lower regards to men, and spirit is held in higher regards than bodies. So when we're taught at a very young age that bodies and things they do or smells they make are super gross, especially for women, and, you know, it's not really surprising that women might be disgusted by it all. And sometimes the disgust can go away, like, in context. Like, if you're married versus not married for some, you know, you can not think it's disgusting anymore or if you're in the mood or not like your idea of sexy can change or if you're attracted to the person or not right like if someone's hitting on you and you're not attracted to them you're like ew but if you are attracted to them you're like okay (laughs) but sometimes the disgust doesn't go away and I felt like some of that guilt and shame around sex when I was younger I went to Catholic school when I was little, like, when all my ideas about the world were forming. And, like, I still have some lingering Catholic guilt sometimes around things. Like, I remember being horrified when I found out what sex was and said I was never going to do that. And, like, whatever disgust feelings you have about sex, though, they can, because they were probably learned, which means they can be unlearned, which is good to know. But it takes a lot of work and time, unfortunately. Actually, this weekend, a song, I think it was yesterday, a song turned on in the car that I haven't heard in so long. It's freak a by Petey Pablo. And in the song, he mentions that he wants a girl who enjoys oral sex, but not by him because he's not drunk enough to do that. And it really stood out to me because, like, this is what I heard as a teenager like on the bus ride home and like recently DJ Khaled made a statement about not going down on his wife but he expects her to do that for him just like weird cultural things that I think like I subconsciously picked up more than I realized as a kid but Um, another thing is I see a lot of posts on the mom's page about partners expecting favors and not giving any in return and if any guy is listening to this that might be thinking oh maybe that's me this way of existing seems like the fastest way to get your partner to not want to to do it or just because they have like you're probably getting a half-assed sexual experience like they're just doing it to do it because they're not getting that like reward at the end like it's kind of a lose lose for everyone so if you want your partner to be excited they need like a reward for doing it it's no wonder our sexuality is confusing like faith tells us one thing about sex media and culture tell us another story your doctor may have different input family, friends all have their own experiences and input and the author says when you are wondering who you should believe like what messages you can trust like the answer is always yourself. She has this quote about treating uh mess like sexual messages like a salad bar. Take only the things that appeal to you and ignore the rest. We'll all end up with different collection of stuff on our plates but that's how it's supposed to work. I thought that was cool. So I feel like it's so common for women to not really be driven to have sex, at least in my own life. Myself, personally, it's not something I ever think about throughout the day until it's time for bed and my husband is like giving me the eyes or I'm in bed with my husband and we like touch arms and the thought will cross my mind. Like, even if a super attractive person is near me, like, at the store, it isn't enough to turn on a spark for me. Like, my brain might acknowledge them, but it's more so thinking, like, get out of my way, attractive person. I need to get to aisle four and grab these items on my to-do list, you know? <laughs> but I learned in this book, sex is not a drive. She has this part highlighted, and it says, most of us are used are used to thinking about sexual desire as a drive, like hunger. A drive is an uncomfortable internal experience that pushes you to go fix a problem. And what's the consequence if you don't solve the problem? Ultimately, you will die. Hunger is a drive. So is thirst. Thermal regulation. Sleep. You can literally die of sleep deprivation. For centuries, scientists thought sex was a drive. It's probably how you think about it, too. It's how I thought about it for a long time. Turns out, no. It's easy to prove sex isn't a drive as animal behaviorist frank beach put in 1956 no one has ever suffered tissue damage for lack of sex nobody ever died because they couldn't get laid maybe they wanted to but that's frustration and people don't die from frustration if it's not a drive what is it it's an incentive motivation system Most people associate the word incentive with the idea of a prize, something worth working for. The biological meaning is similar. Where drives are about being pushed by uncomfortable internal sensation, incentive motivation systems are about being pulled by an attractive external stimulus. Curiosity is the quintessential example of an incentive motivation system, as natural to us as hunger but without the threat of actual death. So there are two major ideas about the best way to approaching getting more intimate and creating sparks in long-term relationships with your partner. Both methods are clear that passion doesn't happen automatically in long-term monogamous relationships, but they are both clear that passion does happen as long as the couple take deliberate control of the context. For some couples that context feels like creating closeness and for others that feels like creating space. So the first method is the mating in captivity by Esther Peril. Um It says, love is having, desire is wanting. And you can want only what you don't already have goes the reasoning. This approach says to have eroticism remain in yourself to maintain the distance necessary to allow wanting to emerge. You have to intentionally add some distance to create a bridge to cross and create desire. Then the opposite method is by John Gottman. The Science of Trust says, the problem is not lack of mystery, but lack of deepening intimacy. Meaning intimate conversation, affection, and friendship are central to the erotic life of long-term relationships. Gottem reported that in a study of 100 long-term couples, half reported good sex lives, half reported bad sex lives, and he found that those who answered they had good sex lives consistently mentioned maintaining close, connected, and trusting friendship and making sex a priority in their lives. So instead of creating a mysterious bridge to cross to create desire, you kind of build a bridge together. The author writes that Peril's method is about hunger as the secret sauce that makes a meal delicious. And Gottman is about arriving home from work, cooking dinner with your partner, having a glass of wine while you cook and feed each other. In Peril's method, you come to your partner with fires already stoked, and in Gottman's, you stroke each other's fires. I personally like both. I think there's, like, good points to each But they both have the same overall goal, increase accelerators and decrease brakes. Some other common issues that she cites is having trouble getting started. But once you're getting started, it's not an issue. This is called responsive desire. And it's healthy and normal in case you are like wondering if you're all right. There is also another common scenario where one partner wants to have sex a bunch and the other doesn't then the partner pursuing it feels rejected. And the partner being chased feels pressure. And it's just like an awkward cycle. It's called the chasing dynamic. The author mentions taking a couple months, or she suggests if you're in this chasing dynamic to take a couple months break until the person feeling chased feels the sense of pressure taken off. Like the time lapse must be substantial enough to feel like a real stop so the pressure can die. And it's very common for people to have different levels of desire. Another thing she brings up that I don't think people talk about enough, um, maybe due to feeling like a bad partner or not womanly enough, or maybe they feel like they will paint their partner in a bad light. But she has this whole section on just really not wanting sex and really not liking it like and I mean if you have a partner you don't even really like or maybe you have a partner you like but the way you guys view sex is very traditional like based off a traditional porn or something you just think you're supposed to do and you aren't orgasming or having any input you're just kind of doing it cuz you're supposed to like how can you expect someone to be super excited to jump into bed like the reward the motivational reward is not tapping on because there's just no fucking reward for women in many cases or if you have a partner and you really don't trust them like can you expect someone to be ready to be super vulnerable and throw themselves out there like not really I remember feeling this way when I was young and just starting out. It was very, like, go through the motions, nothing more really. I was still kind of, like, embarrassed and weird and awkward and still shame-feeling because it was also still hidden at that point from parents and stuff. Like, I'm talking late teens, and I was still living with them. It was still kind of considered, like, something bad. But I was... I don't know, as I've gotten older, it's gotten so much better, and I feel like having a partner you really trust and feel like is safe is what was the game changer for me. Like, knowing you'll be accepted, respected, not shit-talked, like, there's nothing to hide. I know he's into me, he knows I'm into him on a deeper level than just, like, liking each other. Like, I would get a state family leave to take care of him if he was dying of cancer. Level of love there. That really hypes up my encounters, I feel. Nothing sexier. Whisper in my ear that you're my health proxy. (laughs) I wish I could go back in time and tell my younger self that what I was experiencing as a, a late teen, very early 20s was just like a week beginner's game and you'll get to the more advanced levels in time like as long as you but as long as you have like a safe partner you can get there so I've mentioned the wage gap on here and the mental load gap but there's also an orgasm gap due to just like traditional sex not really stimulating the clitoris I googled this and saw so many weird blog posts that call it like the mystery of orgasm and like talking about the difficulty of women reaching them, like how to recognize one. Women's orgasms are even more fascinating than we fathomed. Is this title I see here? And I can't help but laugh. Like I feel like the world is like trying to make a cat purr by like poking it with a broom, and then wondering why this is like not working. For, like, 75% of women. I really feel like porn gave us this idea of, like, the sex storyline we have to follow. That because, like, we just think we're supposed to. Because, like, think about it. Like, a 15-minute video of a guy just, like, rubbing someone's clitoris in the same circular rhythm for 15 minutes probably won't get as many views. Like, I get it. I understand why It is that way, but it kind of sucks. So I hope this got your gears turning. Maybe think about prioritizing sex or your relationship this week. If you've never orgasmed, which is common, don't feel like you're a freak because of that. Maybe um, try to figure it out yourself this week. Like Make it your mission. Tell your partner that's the mission and get to work figuring it out. You deserve that and activating that reward can benefit your partner too. Like you might be more eager to get in bed at night. Uh, Take a look at your lady parts. Work on loving yourself because I think we can all vouch that hating yourself doesn't really get you anywhere. So maybe try a new approach this week. I feel grateful Emily Nagoski exists. I learned so much from her book, I highly recommend it. There was so much more I didn't get into that is worth reading. There was a lot about abuse and like abusive relationships that I didn't really delve into here today. But if that's something that resonates with you, that might be a good read. Um, I'm not sure what next week's topic will be, but I'm sure I will think of something. Send me any thoughts or requests that you want to talk about. Um... Thanks again for tuning in. It means a lot to me, and I hope this helps you feel more normal. Thanks for dealing with all the craziness this morning. Like, I feel so bad. I'm just, like, imagining people, like, pressing play on their, like, morning commute and then just nothing. And I hate that that happened. So thanks for still being here and listening to today's episode. I look forward to the messages from people who listen. It really makes my week makes me feel like all this like is worth it. So, all right, I'm rambling. I'll talk to you later. Bye.